So good to see you guys. Welcome to Riverbend. Um, my name's Andrew. If we haven't met, I'd love the chance to get to know you after the gathering. Also, we're launching a brand new community, and our goal is to launch several more in the next couple of months. So if you want to get connected more here, and you want to actually not just gather with us on Sundays, but actually get into the life of the church, we can tell you, show you how that's done uh, through Riverbend Community. So anyways, please uh, come up and uh, talk to me or Brittany after the gathering if you want to learn more about that. Also, um, if you were not here last week, we debuted a brand new prayer app that's called The Inner Room. So if you weren't here, I just want to invite you, pull out your phone now, download this app, because this is one of the ways that we're encouraging everyone to just begin or resume or like develop a little bit more their daily prayer rhythm. Um, I don't think that an app is ever going to be miraculous and save your life or anything like that, but it is a really great tool, a really great start um, to actually praying on the regular. What I love about this app is that you can set up uh, daily reminders in the morning, midday, and evening to just remind your, yourself to pray. And oftentimes, that's what it comes down to. When I talk to the many of you who are like working on developing that, that prayer rhythm in your life, the, the main hangup is we have good intentions, but we don't plan for success. We have good intentions, but we don't actually like put a plan together. Uh, and so this app is just a very simple way. Turn on notifications and you'll be reminded to pray three times uh, a day, which has been awesome. Okay, with that, um, let's pray, and we're going to have a teaching from the scriptures. Father, uh, we just want to say thank you so much for this constant connection that we have with you. We want to say thank you that you are king, that you are victorious. You're victorious over death. You're victorious over uh, evil. And as we come into your presence now, we're just reassured of your goodness. We're reassured of uh, the, the life that we have in you. So as we often sing, we just praise your name for forgiveness of sin. We praise your name that you've invited us to your family. And we, we ask that this would be one of those times in, in, in our concrete lived experience where you show up and you speak to us and that you reshape our minds and hearts after you. That's our desire. That's our hope, God. So we pray you be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today's reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 13. And this is what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So uh, throughout this series, we've been sort of laying out for you Jesus' vision for your life of prayer. We believe that this isn't just something that's to the side of your life with Jesus. We believe that this is a part of your daily rhythm. My goal has been to inspire you, uh, hopefully, to just begin that rhythm or to develop that rhythm further. And this series, by design, is just long enough for you to form a new habit to the point where connecting with him in prayer is just as normal and as important to you as your rhythms of eating and sleeping and the many other things that you do on the daily. Our hope, our design, 11 weeks is just the perfect amount of time for me to just yak at you time and again to the point where you actually begin developing this and it won't just be something that you casually do from time to time, but something that becomes a part of your daily rhythm. Uh, dietitians and uh, life coaches and uh, physical trainers, they tell us that if we want to excel, if we want to grow, if we want to become healthy people, then we need to plan for that success through regular practice. And the same is true in your spiritual life with God. 
if you want to experience deep change, deep transformation in your life, then you need to devote yourself daily to the habit of prayer. You also know by now that prayer is much more than just you and I asking God for stuff. That's what we've sort of reduced it down to in our cultural imagination, but prayer is so much more than that. It includes things like thanksgiving and praise and confession, and like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, it includes praying the kingdom come. Uh, It also includes what we're going to talk about today and next week, waiting on the Lord. In fact, that, 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 that phrase, wait on the Lord, is one of the most popular commands in Scripture. And if you don't believe me, Google it later. I promise there's dozens of hits, dozens of examples in the Scriptures of that exact command, wait on the Lord. But we often don't practice this uh, because we don't really understand it. We're impatient. That's a hallmark of our generation and our culture, and we're easily distracted. We're pulled in so many different directions. A lot of our priorities are really good priorities, but they tend to pull us away from this habit of waiting on the Lord. So in in the world of spiritual formation and throughout church history, waiting on the Lord has often been called silence and solitude. So you can find many different resources on this. I've got a handful that I read and reread quite regularly because they're that good. My, my thing, my, my hope is that we recover this practice. Not just you talking to God before your dinner uh, this afternoon or whatever, but, but really uh, waiting on God and waiting to hear his, his voice. Because number one, it's what the scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we should be waiting on the Lord. And when God makes us a command, it's not a suggestion. It really is a command. And as Jesus' people, we're under the authority of Jesus and the scriptures, and we want to follow him fully. We want to obey him fully. Also, this is a place where we learn to actually be with God. This is one of the core practices that we need, waiting on the Lord in order to learn this habit of being with God, which I believe is one of the top goals of yours as a disciple of Jesus, not just to kind of uh, do the things that Jesus did or subscribe to some nice ideas that he taught, but to actually be with and be connected with Jesus in your everyday life. And how we do that is by waiting on the Lord. And thirdly, we, we, we wait on the Lord because we want to learn to hear his still small voice, the voice that Elijah heard uh, in, in the mouth of the cave, if you will, um, in, in, in the scripture that we read from 1 Kings 19. This is so incredibly important in your life of prayer. If your life of prayer is just you talking to God, I think that that's a shame because no offense, but out of the two of you, he's got the more valuable things to say. And I don't say that, I don't, I, hopefully you don't, aren't offended by that, but the reality is, is that he has more to say, more valuable things to say, and when you receive them, uh, your life is truly, uh, is truly changed. And I want to not just use that cliche, but I actually want to show you how this works. Ruth Haley Barton uh, wrote a really great book on this topic called An Invitation to Silence and Solitude. And in it, she writes about what's called the push-pull phenomenon the push-pull phenomenon. So in one sense, we're drawn or we are pushed into the quiet place with God. Which, by the way, isn't, isn't that the name of a movie, The Quiet Place? So we'll just call it the solitary place instead because your prayer life is not like a horror film starring Jim from The Office or Emily Blunt or something like that. So on the one hand, we, we are drawn into or we're pulled into Uh, the presence of God, and we love God's presence, but then on the other hand, we pull away from him, and we tend to avoid it. There's this this, uh, dichotomy or this dualistic thing within us, and the question is, well, why is that the case? Why do we uh, have this push-pull phenomenon in our relationship with God, and particularly when it comes to waiting on him? To put it plainly, your interior life is extremely complex. Being a human is a really complex thing. And to be human is to feel all kinds of different emotions. And of course, God is the one who created us this way. But brokenness, which is something that happened uh, later in the story, when brokenness entered into the story, both inside of us and in the world around uh, around us, has made our emotions a mixed bag. So the very thing, here's what I mean, the very thing that makes your heart like leap out of your chest with excitement and passion and love and pleasure and joy and gratitude and friendship and romance, like literally all the stuff that makes life worth living, 
is the exact same thing that makes you vulnerable to heartbreak, to be let down, to be hurt, to be discouraged, to be depressed, anxious, filled with fear, and on down the list. Emotions are a mixed bag, and that's to put it mildly. So human nature then is to distract or to avoid this kind of negative emotion rather than face it in the presence of God. So human nature is to to distract ourselves from negative emotion rather than face them head on. So the practices that we most desperately need, like prayer, and, and these practices, they help us to actually become like Jesus and to deal with those negative emotions, we actually subconsciously sort of push them to the side. So although he is what we most desperately need, in moments of emotional weakness or when we're avoiding or distracting or coping in one form or another, we we push the presence of God to the side and we avoid it, the very thing that we need. So Pete Scazzaro, who wrote this uh, great book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader, he's got a great podcast. I highly recommend you listen to that. You get the book and you read it. He calls this our shadow side, our shadow side, meaning in unhealth, We are unaware of our brokenness or the ways that we are distracting ourselves and coping against um, the the pain and the suffering in our stories. So our coping mechanisms range based on our personalities and our season of life. If you're type A, you might throw yourself completely into work and just strive for another accomplishment. If you tend to seek validation from others, you might spend all of your time with friends or something like that. If you're depressed and fatigued, and quite frankly, we've seen a lot of depression and fatigue in, the culture, in our culture the last couple of years, then you just tend to escape with behaviors like binging Netflix or endlessly scrolling through social media or overdrinking or something like that. And now here's how coping mechanisms work. For a moment, all of our emotional baggage is forgotten and we feel better, right? That's why it's a coping mechanism. However, Uh, No matter what coping mechanism you're drawn to, even if it's like an an especially healthy one like exercise or something like that, when you do finally slow down and all of that distraction is stripped away and you're alone, all of those emotions that you've been distracting yourself from or perhaps even suppressing, they come rushing to the surface. And it's my contention that in, in the presence of God or waiting on the Lord is the healthy and safe place for those emotions to come to the surface because God is the one who's truly powerful to heal and transform. Henry Nouwen, the, the great uh, Catholic writer of the 20th century, he, he wrote this, In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, No music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. And it's this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. Wow, this is profound, and I understand uh, taking us to an uncomfortable place. But in other words, what Henry Nouwen is saying is that being alone with God at times can be quite uncomfortable because we're not hiding from ourselves anymore. Like spending time alone in the quiet with God is also a decision to not hide from what's actually going on inside of you anymore and certainly not from God. So we are exposed before him and we're facing our stuff as opposed to distracting ourselves from it. Now, if now one's right, the question becomes like, why would we ever want then to pursue the solitary place with God? Well, because, again, this is the place of real healing. This is the place of real transformation. When you're alone, but in the presence with God, you are safe. I would actually argue that this is the only place that you are perfectly safe, is with him in God's presence. Your marriage, if you're married, um, is hopefully a safe place. However, it's not always the case. Um, You know, there are times where our brokenness works itself out in our our marriages in a really unhealthy way. Your community, this church, yes, we want to be a place that is safe for you and all of that, but we too are human and we have our own faults. And the scripture says the most sort of profound thing uh, in Jeremiah that, that strikes me every time I read it is that Yahweh, although he knows absolutely everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he loves you and I just the same. So even though he knows us and 
He knows everything about us, even the most ugly things about us. He loves us just the same. A pastor friend of mine says, you are never, um, you are never more sinful than God already knows you are. And he still decided to love you, which I love that. I, I absolutely love that. Henry Nouwen, again, he writes this, prayer is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and where the new self is born. So the solitary place with God is where we don't need to distract ourselves anymore from our emotional pain. But we actually learn to lean in to that in order to receive his healing and transformation. Which is, of course, what happens in our scripture reading today. I, I read for you First uh, Kings chapter 19. It's a story about a prophet named Elijah. And this will help us over the next couple of weeks understand I think what God means by healing and transformation. So if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible or it's been a while, uh, 1 Kings 19 is uh, during a particularly dark period of Israel's history. And Ahab, their king at the time, was uh, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's a quote from 1 Kings verse 16 or chapter 16, verse 30. So if you're familiar with the story of Israel's kings, you know that's saying a lot because there have been a lot of really evil kings along the way in Israel's story. But it got so bad that he and his wife Jezebel, Queen, Queen Jezebel, they built a temple to a rival god named Baal. And if you know the Ten Commandments, which most of you do, you know that's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one is you shall not bow down and, and worship them. That's number two. And, and Jezebel and Ahab, they were doing both, and they were influencing the people of Israel to do the same. So Elijah's job in that particular time and space was to confront them on God's behalf. Does that sound fun? No, it was not fun at all. Actually, most of Elijah's life, he was uh, being threatened to be killed. But Elijah decides to obey God regardless. In chapter 18, uh, this is actually uh, for another time, but please go back and read it. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole of Scripture right now. In chapter 18, Elijah sets up this elaborate test. There's been all of this idol worship that has been going on for a long period of time within Israel. So he sets up this test. He says, gather all of the prophets of Baal, this rival God, and then also gather all of the people of Israel and let's meet up at Baal's temple that Ahab built. And let's both build an altar. This is what the test is. Let's both build an altar. And whoever can call down fire from heaven, that's the one true God. So if y'all can call down fire from, from heaven, from Baal, then we'll worship him. But if it's Yahweh, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he's who will worship. And then he preaches to Israel, and I love this sermon, it's one of my favorites, how long will you be divided between two opinions? Either Yahweh is God and worship him, or Baal is God and follow him. So he's basically speaking to the duality and the uh, the. Uh, the uh, the, the spirit of idolatry within Israel. And so then it's on. This experiment is on. It's really cool. There are 400 prof, 450 prophets of Baal, and they all go to work sort of calling down fire from heaven. They have these rituals, and they're uh, praying all these elaborate prayers. Apparently a part of their prayer ritual was like self-harm. It gets pretty dark in there, but they were doing all of this in order to call down fire from he heaven. And Elijah is in the corner all by himself laughing and taunting them, which is kind of a fun part of the story to me. And after hours of like no success, Elijah says that it's his turn. And before he begins to pray, he has a bunch of people pour buckets and buckets and buckets of water all over the altar they had made, which was made of wood and stone and all kinds of things. And so he says, and then let's do a moat too. Let's dig a big moat around this altar and then pour water in that as well. And so that's what they do. And after one prayer, this is what the scripture says at the end of 1 Kings 18. The fire of the Lord fell. And burned up the sacrifice, the wood, stones, and the soil, and also all of the water. And all of the people fell down flat and cried, Yahweh, Yahweh, he's God. This is such a cool story, you guys. Seriously, this is amazing. Someone should actually make a, mo make a movie on that. I feel like this would be, or at least a comic book or something. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, uh, such an awesome story. One day we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how God has victory over our idols because that is an important conversation. But for today, we're just interested in what happens next, 
right? So what happens next, King, uh, King Ahab's wife Jezebel finds out what has happened, finds out who's responsible for it, Elijah, and then she makes an oath before the army of Israel and says, none of us are going to sleep until Elijah's dead. She basically, I don't know, if I, like, I've had some people mad at me in my day. I've had my fair share, but I've never, that I know of. No one's taken a vow to try and kill me. Uh, but this is, this is, again, this is Elijah's life at the time. When he confronts evil and injustice, this is, this is what, what he faces. And then, and then this is what happens immediately following that. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. That tracks. That makes sense. That tracks, yeah. So then he comes to this place called Beersheba in Judah, and he left his servant there. Don't think like enslaved person. Think like a protege of his. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Consider the contrast. One day, Elijah is at the top of his game, full of the spirit, standing up to Baal and the king. And then the following day, he's running for his life and wishes that he were dead. Right? This is just so typical, I think, to the human experience. And I'm sure you can relate to this, maybe not to this extreme, but at some level. For example, I'm old enough to remember the turn of the millennium. Those of you who are my age and a little bit older, you might remember that, like 1999, Y2K, that was 1999's version of apocalypse theory, and it was just this crazy time to be alive. By the way, looking at all of that through the lens of 2022 is hilarious to me. But anyways, we actually have things to worry about today, whereas back in 1999, it was like, I don't know what it was, but it was crazy. Anyways, New Year's Eve, 1999, my family and I we were celebrating at a friend's house, and there was a bunch of friends there, and we are having this incredible time, and I remember being like 12, 13 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, we're on the dawn of a new millennium, like a new, like we're switching from 1999 to 2000. This is a brand new millennium. This is so exciting, and I remember talking in that party about like all of our hopes and dreams for the coming millennium, and it just was an awesome time. Then we get in our car, at like 1 a.m. in the morning. So this is the first thing that happens to us in the new millennium. We get hit by a drunk driver at like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> and our car flips several times. Mom and dad go to the hospital. Dad's shoulder needs surgery. It's this wild experience. So we go from having like this pretty significant high in my life where I'm thinking to myself, we have this my whole life in front of me. This is really cool. It's the dawn of a new millennium to are we all going to die right now? Right? This is a lot of what the, uh, the, the uh, human experience is. Extreme highs and extreme lows, sometimes in really close proximity. One, and this is how Elijah felt. One moment, life couldn't be better. The next moment, it couldn't be worse. And he's had enough. And then this is what the scripture says. All he can muster the strength to do is cry out for God to take his life and then crash underneath a broom bush. And then this is what it says in verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and then he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. Okay, so um, I think this is super significant. Remember, Elijah knew how to pray. When was the last time you called down fire from heaven? It's been a minute for me, if I'm being honest. But this is, this is Elijah's lived experience just now. He also has many other wild and crazy miraculous prayers that were also answered, right? So this dude knew how to pray. So in this moment, in a period of just complete and total exhaustion, what's Elijah's prayer now in these verses? It's nothing. He doesn't have anything to say, not even a token prayer, bless this food to my body. My guess is he was probably thinking, you know, the, the, the angel prepared it, so it was like pre-blessed or something like that. I don't know. But he was not actually praying in that moment. All he has the strength to do is to eat, drink, roll over, go back to sleep, and repeat. The same thing happens a few times. So Elijah, for all of his prowess and all of his um, 
accolade and the fact that he is, quite frankly, one of the models or one of the exemplar uh, people in the Bible. He's also very human and he also reached his limit. He reached his limit. So then this is what the scripture says after that. Strengthened by that food. So he eats, sleeps, eats, sleeps, eats, sleeps. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, or the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've tore down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, so this is another significant moment. What's happening here? Well, Horeb, if you're not familiar, is another name for Mount Sinai or the mountain of God. Now, if you remember, what happens at Mount Sinai? All of the high moments in the story of Israel up until this point happened at Mount Sinai. Why? Because Sinai is the place of encounter. It's a place of encounter with God. It's where Moses meets with God. It's where he receives the Ten Commandments and the law. And God talked to Moses like he did a friend in the language of Exodus, which I absolutely love. The mountain of God represents encounter. Elijah, when he's at complete, his complete and total end, says, I need to meet with God. I'm going back to where it all began with me, and I'm going to cry out to him. And so what he does is he goes on a 200 and some odd backpacking trip. It's not the PCT, but it's still, it's a long ways. And it takes him 40 days, 40 days. And after those 40 days, Yahweh speaks to him. Notice that's a considerable period of time, 40 days. What are you doing here, Elijah, is the question. What are you doing here? There's so much in there. What do you, what do you want is essentially God's question to him, which is fascinating to me. So I want to ask the question, is Elijah in a good spot? Well, I think he's in the right spot and God is with him, but you can tell he's in a foul mood, right? Catch the tone of his prayer. I've been super zealous. There's no one left besides me. Everyone else is dead and now I'm going to be dead too, right? This is his attitude. I think this is his emotionally raw irrational prayers coming out. And the scripture doesn't hide from that, actually. In fact, the Bible is filled with all kinds of unsanitized details that we've tried to clean up for Sunday school. But the reality is, there is a lot of heavy and dark things here in the scripture, one of them being the very honest, raw, and sometimes tragic prayers of his people. And how does God respond to that foul mood that Elijah's in? Notice what comes next. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So his promise is not to just speak to him, but is to actually be with him. This is a cataclysmic difference. It's very important for us to understand. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a what? Gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Okay, this is where it gets good. Because Elijah gets the encounter with God that he was hoping for. Not just a passing word, but actually the presence of God himself. God hears him, he shows up, and then he wraps him in comforting love, which is what God specializes in. And certainly in my story, which I am about to share with you, um, I've found that to be completely true. So I love this image, though, of God showing up in a gentle whisper. God showing up in a gentle whisper. Now, Elijah was, of course, used to all of the stories from Exodus. They shaped his childhood and his cultural imagination was shaped around these high moments in the history of his nation where God came to them in a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke or an earthquake or something like that. And now he's there where it all happened and he's expecting more of the same, or at least that's me reading into it. Maybe he's just expecting God to do more of that same stuff. But remember, Elijah was well-versed in this, and he was also uh, filled with God's power himself. He had seen fire from heaven consuming the altar just a few days prior. 
So the loving father actually knows what Elijah needed. He had witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit. What he needed was the comfort from his father. What he needed was a gentle voice. What he needed was in that place with God to receive from God just the gift of his presence. So often when we come to God in prayer, uh, we come to him with the things that we want or we think that we need, and all of that's good. I certainly do not want to discourage you at all from praying all of your prayers, even the ones that just represent your wants and needs or whatever. But what we get often is not what we ask for, but what the Father actually knows that we need. But we need to slow down long enough, and we need to be willing to wait on the Lord to actually receive it. Now, there's much more to this story. We're going to finish it uh, next week because we don't have time to dive into it all right here, right now. But what we are going to do before we're done is to kind of find the pattern in here. Find the pattern for waiting on the Lord and then how to practice God's presence in that sort of solitary place. And by the way, I'm borrowing a ton of what I'm uh, sharing with you today from Ruth Haley Barton's book, An Invitation to Silence and Solitude. So um, I'm not plagiarizing, but I am borrowing a lot of her work. (laughs) So here we go. The pattern that we see from Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is rooted right here in this text of Scripture. And it begins with Elijah's withdrawal. Withdrawal. By the way, we see Jesus repeating this pattern dozens of times in the gospel stories where Jesus' primary work is engaging in culture, sharing the good news, caring for the, the oppressed, caring for those who are poor, caring for the outsider and bringing them in, also healing the sick and demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God in all kinds of ways. But then an equally as important part of Jesus' life and practice is his time withdrawing from all of that to be alone with the Father. We see it all over the place, and we see it here with Elijah too. If you're going to have success in this practice of praying the kingdom come and waiting on the Lord, you need to set aside time and space. Again, that probably involves unplugging from your tech. It might involve going into the mountains, which we are at a huge advantage living where we live. In like six minutes, we can be out on a trail somewhere all by ourselves, which is amazing. Or we need to do something like that. If you don't like my ideas... No problem. They wouldn't be the first time. Just ask my family. They don't like my ideas a lot of the time. But the, the, then the, the tension or the, 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 the challenge goes back to you. How will you create time and space to wait on the Lord? And if you're anything like me, uh, you, you know that you need this, and you kind of think to yourself, yeah, okay, I, I want to plan for my time alone with God and everything else. But for whatever reason, I think oftentimes it's fear, it's doubt, It gets in the way. Or things that are just like a pressing need that pops up around you. I'm reading another book right now called The Tyranny of the Urgent. It feels like my whole life right now where as soon as I get focused on some deep work or spending time alone in the quiet with God, where something will come up that just quite frankly is pulling my attention and my, my priorities elsewhere. So if you intend to be successful in this practice, you need more than like a going today, like, yeah, yeah, it sounds good. I think I want to do that. You need to actually plan it, and you need to create that time and space despite the busyness of your life. And when you do that, this is actually an act of trust, because I know how some of you might be experiencing this. You're thinking to yourself, okay, great. I like that you have a passion and priority for prayer, but you don't know how my life works. I've got four kids, or uh, my life is really crazy right now. I'm going through this crazy crisis, or whatever. To to which I will quote Dallas Willard, who says, you might think that you don't have time to pray. You actually don't have time not to pray. Actually, you don't have time not to pray. Our our, our priorities are misaligned when we say there's many other things that I have to do before I pray. The reality is that we need to create that time first and foremost, just like we create room in our life for sleep, for food, for family. Like We need to create time for time alone in the quiet with God. And to me, this is an act of trust. This is an act of trust for you and me. Not trusting in yourself that you can figure out life and manage it all, but trust in God. So that's number one, withdraw. Number two, uh, the pattern of Elijah is to rest. What you might need is what Elijah needed, which is just a huge interruption in the normal rhythms of life, just to sleep, just to eat, just to drink. 
Ruth Haley Barton distinguishes between a couple of different things in her book. She says there's good tired and then there's dangerous tired. And good tired is something that you get at the end of a long week where you're doing a bunch of meaningful work and you have important people in your life and you're just living a life of consequence, right? That's good. That's good tired, right? And many of you feel that quite often because you lead meaningful lives. However, there's also dangerous tired, which is no amount of sleep or rest or whatever is able to wake you up again to the reality of God's goodness in your life. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who I greatly admire, who's been a mentor to me for years, he um, just finished like a long stint of leading at a megachurch, and he had a very big and difficult job, and he did it really faithfully in my opinion, but he decided he needed a sabbatical, which for him was like almost 10 weeks of full rest, no work email, no text messaging, no meetings, no nothing, just camping and a lot of time with family. And I asked him about it, and I said, how did you know that this was like important for you to do, or why did you need to prioritize this right now? What he told me, I'll never forget. He said, when no amount of sleep was actually solving for the fatigue that I felt. And he's normally like this super eager man of God, and I have a ton of respect for him and his competence and also his drive and his passion for God and his kingdom. But he described being basically unable to really listen to God because he deep down knew that he wouldn't have the energy to obey God if he heard him. And when he knew that, he knew that it was the time for him to take a solid season for just rest and recuperating from fatigue. And that could be you right now. You could have, like, you could be in grad school working a couple of jobs, or you've recently moved to Bend and you're trying to transition or make a shift in careers, or you've got five kids like the Larsons do, or something like that. You could have a lot going on. And you want to pray and you want to talk about what's actually going on in your life and you want to sit alone and quiet with God. However, you find yourself just too fatigued to even like stay awake, much less deal with your complex set of emotions. And it appears to me from 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 1 Kings 19, that God even has space for that. And that's actually okay. Maybe what you need is an extended interruption to your normal rhythms to sleep in, eat good food, and then more rest. Maybe even ignore the alarm for a little bit. Again, I want to differentiate. We're not just talking about self-help and all of that stuff. We're actually setting this up against the escapist behaviors of our culture, which is to binge Netflix, endlessly scroll through social media, or whatever. We're talking about a true detox from work, screens, social commitments, in order to position yourself in the presence of God. Are you guys with me? Sweet. That idea, although you like it, will never happen unless you plan for it. And some of us, just it's just overdue, and we need to plan for that. And now, by the way, my buddy's back at work. He's loving it. He's been promoted a couple of times, and he's doing an amazing job. So all of that to say that you can be restored. The third pattern or stage in, in, in this um, pattern is to wait, is to wait. This is the part that is so upstream to our culture. We are not comfortable waiting. In fact, I do a lot of spiritual direction, which is us praying for about 45 minutes to an hour. I'd love to pray with you if you want to do that, particularly if you're going through crisis. The biggest shift that most people have to make when we start praying uh, and doing spiritual direction is just the amount of time we are quiet. And even me as a pastor who's done this for hundreds of hours, I still feel this pressure to be like, to just like move things along. Right? Because, again, things are according to my sort of speedy timeline and agenda and everything else. But when we wait on the Lord, we're essentially letting go of that timeline. We're letting go of, uh, of, of our agendas, and we're allowing God to do his thing. We're giving God the control that he actually needs. So during his 40-day journey, we don't know and we don't read that Elijah heard from God during those 40 days where he's hiking out to Horeb. We don't know why that is, but we don't read any. It's not until he gets there 40 days later that he hears God's voice. Why? No clue. I have absolutely no idea. And I think the Bible is intentionally vague on that because it wants to invite us into the tension of recognizing that when we're in con- not in control, that's because that's what God has designed, and it's actually good for us to lean into that. Carlo Coretto writes, God comes like the sun in the morning when it is time. Not when I say the sun should rise, but when it's time. We must assume an attitude of waiting, accepting the fact that we are creatures and not creator. I love that. 
And again, like many of the Psalms say, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, as in Psalm 37.7. So you're probably not going to go on a 40-day backpacking trip unless you have that kind of flexibility in your life, in which case I'm super jealous and I hope you have fun. But we probably won't have that kind of time for waiting. But here's what this could mean for you for this week. Waiting on God is about releasing your expectations of him. The, the, uh, the, the, the aesthetics or the, the Catholic mystics, they had this, this vision of maturity in Christ as being an indifference to anything that's not God's will. Like a resignation from anything that is not what God wants for us. And I think we need a little bit more of that. And waiting on the Lord trains your mind to release agenda, release timetables, and release your expectations on him. You with me? Okay. You're just being with him. So I, I, have your books, definitely. Have your devotionals, have your time in scripture, have your prayer list, all of those things, absolutely. But silence and solitude or waiting on the Lord is another part of your practice. It's about setting those things aside, even for a matter of minutes, so that you can actually present, practice the presence of God. And then four and finally for today is that they, um, that Elijah, he, he withdrew, he rested, he waited, and then he felt. Okay, this is um, painfully obvious, right? But, but for Elijah, he needed that space to withdraw, wait, rest, so that his true feelings could, could come to the surface before God. And this is where we need to come. We need to get to this place where we're no longer suppressing our emotions, but you're actually allowing them to come to the surface. And this might be a new thing for you, depending on who you are. I know for me as a man, uh, you know, in a slightly sophisticated culture, I tend to be more reserved and suppress my emotions. But what you want to do in the presence of God is to come to him with all of your distractions and your fears and all of the stuff that you currently are and just be with him. Now, a couple of ways or a couple of questions to help get you started along this line um, is just a few questions that I've found helpful for me. Um, would you say that you are a person who is generally in touch with their feelings in a healthy Jesus-like way? Is that you? Or is it hard and difficult for you? If so, why is that? Was so, uh, emotional awareness a part of your upbringing? And how did your family of origin deal with emotional pain? And how has that shaped your life today? And then finally, what is your coping mechanism of choice? Is it escapism? Is it alcoholism? Is it denial? Is it overwork? Is it busyness? Is it church activity? Or is it other priorities? What is it? Um, and I, 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 the, the reason why we bring this up, I actually am editing myself from the last gathering because I know how this may sound, right? We live in a self-help culture where the self-help mantra is like running really strong. So we're, we talk a lot about wellness and we talk a lot about wholeness, but we're not really talking about it from the Jesus perspective. But from the Jesus perspective, our self-awareness is leading to our denial of ourself to be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus. So in no ways are we saying for you to take like a bunch of looks at yourself. If anything, we're saying take a look at yourself, but for every, every time you take a look at yourself, take a hundred looks at the cross and then follow in his way. But for some of us, we are so unaware, self-unaware, that we don't even understand how we're moving through the world and how our way, our lifestyle is broken and is, uh, is not conformed into the image of Jesus. So where are you on that spectrum? That's the question that you bring to the Lord in prayer. I don't expect that all of this will be fun for you, but I do expect it will lead to your healing and it will lead to your transformation. And one of the reasons why this is such an important part uh, to talk, uh, such an important part of prayer or category of prayer to talk about is because I've seen firsthand how God does in fact speak in the silence. I've been waiting on the Lord for about seven years uh, I've been following Jesus for close to 20. I've always been a student of the Bible. I've, for most of this time, I've been leading in church in one form or another. I was a youth pastor at 19. Uh, and so I've been doing a lot of this kind of work for, I think, a long time. But up until seven years ago, I had not even really learned what it meant to wait on the Lord or really even considered it much. But then, uh, seven and a half or so years ago, uh, we, my wife and I, uh, Grace and I, we lost our twins, Hope and Brielle, on the day of their birth, 
May 10th, 2015. And this is a huge part of our story. And for many of our close friends, you've walked through similar things that are extremely difficult to bear. But this was like a turning point for me in so many different ways. Um, and I, I can't possibly share all of them with you now. It takes me days to say all that God has done in our lives through them. And it's been a crazy journey um, that I wouldn't wish on anyone to lose a baby. I think the most unnatural thing in the world is to outlive your kid. It's not, or it's not supposed to be that way. And so it was tragic, and it still is tragic. And there's a lot of you who've gone through some form of infant loss as well. So our hearts definitely go out to you, and we feel very connected to those of you who've experienced that kind of pain and trauma and if you're feeling alone in that, or if you're going through some form of crisis, and um, yeah, our hearts are just with you. But I remember that day, we were, we were at uh, a, a hospital called Riverbend in Eugene. This was before we planted the church. And I remember um, finding out that our daughters, who were going to be born that day, were, had, had just passed. And in that moment... I just remember a lot of things, obviously, a flood of deep sorrow and grief, but then almost immediately following, we felt just a rush and the peace of God. And we, we, we sensed that, that psalm that, that um, I often quote, that Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. That was um, a, a, like a very true lived experience type thing for me in that moment. That we, were, we weren't just kind of like quoting cliche verse back and forth to one another, but that was actually our true lived experience. But pretty soon after that, maybe just like a couple of days after, I sort of subconsciously clicked into this other gear of wanting to be a dutiful, sort of responsible husband and father. My wife, Grace, if you know her, super passion is compassion, or superpower is compassion and empathy. She's just filled with grace all the time, which means that she wears her heart in her sleeve and she feels emotions very deeply. So she was grieving out in the open. And then my daughter, Isabel, was three at the time. And she had all kinds of questions about what had happened and what this meant and everything else. And I was just thinking about them and I wanted to care for them well. And so we would cry together and we would grieve together, but I never actually myself withdrew. And I never myself spent time alone with God to express my hurt to him. And there were times where I really felt prompted to do that. And I really probably needed to. But for one reason or another, maybe it's because I'm a man and it doesn't seem masculine to do that. I hope I'm not that basic, but maybe I am. I just resisted that draw into the Lord's presence. And I resisted it hard. I was also working as a youth pastor at the time. And there was a lot of people who had joined in on our story and had seen what had happened. And I didn't want anyone to get the sense that, like, the loss of our daughters had caused us to lose our faith. Because it really hadn't. We, we were trusting in the Lord. But in that process, I was cheating myself on real grief and allowing God to heal me. Because I was too busy distracting myself and avoiding it altogether. So I did not let God come in to heal and restore. Instead, I leaned into my coping mechanism of choice, which as a type A kind of leader personality, just more, more work, more church work in particular, which is particularly dangerous, I think. So I just went after stuff like the kingdom, the people of God, Jesus, and all of that, and I was growing numb. I'm typically a pretty empathetic person, I think, I hope. But during that time of life, I just grew numb to the people around me. The, the positive, the negatives, I didn't really feel much of anything. I was numb to sadness. I was numb to people's victories and celebrations and all of that. And there were weeks where I probably felt next to nothing at all. I was just on autopilot, and that was about it. And my wife, Grace, she was the one who pointed this out first. She was the one who saw it. She, in retrospect, was uh, the more honest and more emotionally healthy and more mature person as she grieved through the loss of Hope and Brielle. And she was the one who actually taught me, thank God she taught me, how to wait on the Lord through all of that. And she noticed this in me, and she just urged me to go and to take the things that I was actually feeling, actually access them, and actually express them in my prayers to the Lord. 
So I sort of stumbled into it, not with any sense of like, um, yeah, like, pr- like prowess or any sort of ability. I was just like basically taking all of my crap that I had in my heart and I was just bringing it to the Lord. I would not have called it waiting on the Lord or silence and solitude or something like that. It was probably just like my angry drives with God, which is about all that they were at the time. And the first primary emotion that I started to feel was anger, not towards God, but just anger. That was just what was in me. And as I began to voice those raw prayers to God, that's when the healing actually began to start. And I can't point to a specific moment or a specific time where everything changed. There wasn't any breakthrough, catalytic, like I you know, woke up in the depths of despair and then all of a sudden I was teleported to this state of euphoria. That's not the way that it works either. But I can say that I learned to hear his voice in that solitary place. And it wasn't him shouting at me. It wasn't pillars of fire. It wasn't earthquakes. It was in the noise. The noise was silence and the voice of God rose to the surface. The whisper from God, I'm here. Your pain is real. I can sympathize with it. I know. I feel you. I'm here. Come to me. And this is when God began to teach me not just to recite the promises of Scripture that I knew by heart at that time because I've been preaching all these messages but to actually receive them for the gift that they are. We have to, when we wait on the Lord, we are actively working against the academic and knowledge-based system that we all grew up in, to know it, know it, know it, know it, know it. That did me nothing. I had to receive it in the presence of God. I suppose it was very helpful for me to know those things going into the Lord's presence. So there's not like knowledge isn't anything, but it certainly does not result in the healing and the transformation that we need. Knowledge does not do that. What does that is the presence of God. This is where healing is actually truly found. So in God's presence, while I waited on him, I learned how to receive the promises of God finally deep into my soul. And I'm still very much in process. I have great months and then I have bad ones. The more I press into this, though, the more I discover this new place of freedom where I'm not having to run from pain but take it to Jesus, and I'm able to quiet my mind, which is normally pretty race, racing a lot, of, a lot of the time, and I'm able to instead release things to him. And I believe that this is the defining practice of your healing and transformation. Like, if you, you need, many of you need to go into counseling. Many of you need mentors. Many of you need pastoral direction and things like that. But I think what you most desperately need is a spiritual director, and we're happy to do this for you and play this role in your life if you want is to take you into the presence of God and teach you how to wait on the Lord. And I think this is a profound need that we all need, and I believe that this is where healing and transformation takes place. No matter where you're at in life right now, this is an important practice, especially if you're going through some kind of pain or trauma, or you're in crisis for one reason or another. Maybe it's of your own doing, or maybe it's um, happened to you. But whatever the case Uh, Maybe you've been suppressing emotions for years because you think you're a man and you feel like you have to do that or whatever. If you have this undealt with brokenness, you need waiting on the Lord. Even if you don't, this is still a powerful practice. Step one is to simply meet with God in that emotional pain. You don't have to muster up anything. You don't have to have a clear agenda. All you have to do is go into God, acknowledge that your pain is hard, no doubt about it. But then in silence and solitude, this is where healing begins you're actually with the Father. He's the one who's really safe. The Father is the one who actually has all power and also all love, right? If you, if you have a God who's all powerful, but he doesn't have love, then he, he doesn't care about you. But if you have a God who's all love and no power, you've got a lot of sympathy, but you don't have any actual power to change. We have a God who is both of those things all in one, and he's your good Father, and with him you are safe. And he's the one who can deeply change you. The question is, do you really trust him? Do you really trust him to do that? And if you do, then you will actually begin to supplant some of the old coping mechanisms and and practices that have kept you ensnared to things like sin and hopelessness and all of that. And you'll actually be drawn into the presence of God. So much, much more that we need to say about this, which we'll hopefully be able to get through tomorrow or next Sunday. I wish we had this daily, wouldn't that? (laughs) Oh, I could get through so much more stuff if we could do this every day. Do you got, what do you guys think? Monday? Tomorrow? All right, let's go. All right, Natalie, hopefully your voice is better. All right. Okay, so the invitation for us, though, for today is to just begin this pattern that we see from Elijah and from the life of Jesus and the first four parts of this pattern, which is to withdraw, rest, wait, and feel. Practice this a few times this, this upcoming week. 
Withdraw to some place where it's quiet and you'll be alone. Rest, that's slowing yourself down, breathing deep, inhaling and exhaling, finding yourself in the present moment, not being in the past or in the future, but being in the present. Prepare your heart to listen for God and then wait. This is the part that is hard for us, but wait. Release your agenda, release your expectations. You don't have to produce anything, consume anything. You don't have to have a cool story to tell a friend later. You're just waiting on the Lord. And finally, you feel. You connect your emotions and you allow yourself the permission for those things to come rising to the surface. Again, I don't anticipate this being exceedingly comfortable for you, but I do sense that the, God, that the Lord <laughs> of everything is, is going to begin to heal and, and transform you. I've seen it this very week, both in my own heart and life, but also in some of the people who are in this very room right now, most of whose story I'm not really able to share because of confidentiality. But the reality is that there has been life change. There has been healing. There is transformation that's happening when we go and seek the Lord in his presence. We need this. We need this. You need it too. So with that, let's stand and let's pray. Okay, so uh, if you know me, you know I have a supreme aversion uh, to, to token praying, which typically is something we do before every meal or at the end of a sermon. We're like, oh, yeah, we pray, and then we go to lunch, right? So um, I know that that is what we tend to do. But I hope that just for right now we can sort of resist that temptation to zone out and to instead just find ourselves here with your sister and brothers and in God's presence. So if you're comfortable, I just encourage you to open your hands. And this is just to indicate to yourself and also to God, your sisters and brothers around you, that you're in a posture of receiving. You want to receive from him today. And take in a nice deep breath. And as you do, be reminded that the scripture talks about the presence of God as like the ruach or the wind or the energy or the breath of God. In other words, we're meant to actually see the presence of God as, as, like, as, as oxygen gives life to our bodies. The Spirit gives life to our, to our spirit. I just want you to notice gratitude coming to the surface of your heart came here with burdens, I know. Some of you, big ones. I just want you to notice the gratitude that, that's forming in you or that's coming up to the surface. Because the, although you've carried heavy burdens, you don't have to actually hold on to them forever. You can actually cast them in the language of First Peter on him because he cares for you. Even if just for that, just be grateful. And now I just want to pray the ancient prayer that's been in the church for thousands of years, which is just come Holy Spirit. the Holy Spirit here of course we know he's always with us Jesus said he's now in us and empowering us but this exercise is like in the language of that, that one hymn we're tuning our hearts to his it's like we're getting on his on key we begin to harmonize with him just want you to feel the freedom to feel all of the intense things that you brought into this gathering. Some of you are just coming in here feeling great, in which case this is just an exercise in praying for your sisters and brothers around you. 
For those of you who've come in with heavy burdens, we just encourage you now in the presence of God and the safety that you have here with the Father, just let them go. Just notice his mercy and his compassion just begin to wash over you. I know this sounds like metaphor and it is, but it's also real. You are a person filled with a complex interior life and the Lord is here with you and he loves you. So in this final rhythm of prayer, before we sing, I encourage you to just release your uh, expectation. Again, just kind of, um, I guess by that we just mean to just let go of the things that you came in holding tightly. The, the thing I want you to just know and know for certain is that you are God's child, you are his daughter, you are his son. And he's given us victory in Jesus and so we get to sing to him and praise his name. So although this moment of quote prayer is over, it does not mean your connection or your conversation and your two-way kind of love relationship with him is somehow over, it's not. We're going to continue in song. So sing out, sing aloud, sing praise to him. Also, um, we're gonna come forward to receive the bread and cup like we always do. So during this next song, please come forward, receive the bread and cup, and we'll take it together as a church here in a minute. And if you need prayer for any reason, we have people in the back who would love to pray for you. It's our honor, really, to do that. So if something struck a chord and you just need help today, we'd love to pray. So let us do that. All of us in one voice, let's praise the Lord.